It's good to see your faces. We missed you. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Just a couple of announcements. I'd like you to uh, listen. We are a praying church, and we don't do a lot of public prayer, but on Wednesdays we have a time of prayer. And I send out on Mondays, if I have your email, uh, just an email asking for your prayer request. So I'd encourage you to send those in to me. But also, if you have private or personal or, like, immediate prayer requests, I'm usually on the laptop most all day long, and I get notices. It's just part of my work. But feel free to email me about if you have a prayer request. Also, we are studying, just started today, the book of Esther in adult Sunday school class or ministry training classes some people like to say it. And we're learning about God's providence, man's responsibility. I'm sorry, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and providence. So you're welcome to join us there. Amen. Thanks, Andy, and good to have you back. We're going to prepare for communion here in just a moment. You might want to turn in your hymn books as Blake comes to lead us in just a bit to 224. There's a fountain, fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We'll sing that to prepare our hearts to receive communion. I'll say something about that in just a moment, but I want first for us to Take time to prepare our hearts privately in prayer to worship Christ, not only in Holy Communion as we receive communion, but also to be able to hear and heed God's word, to hear what God would say to his people indeed this day. We have a scripture passage that I'd like to read for you that uh, from Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13, and it puts a... Um, a, a really good thought in, in our mind in no matter whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in would be to look to Christ. Oftentimes the, those things that we might f- find refuge in we, they might be literally kicked out from underneath of us if you will and it is those times then that should call his people to look to Christ to find strength in him. I'll read this week's uh, verse, and then I'll call you to private prayer, and then I'll pray for us corporately, and we'll then sing this hymn. Let me read this passage of scripture before we pray. From Philippians 4.11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You privately prepare your heart to worship Christ today, and then I'll pray for us publicly. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we have gathered today to worship you. There might be very circumstances uh, among your people today that are capturing our attention. Perhaps some are very discouraged. Perhaps others are very encouraged about great possibilities. I pray for whatever situation we might find ourselves in, ultimately we will look to Christ. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us indeed this day through our encouragement of one another to love and good works. I pray that we would be encouraged by the singing of your word in the hymns that we sing today to praise and honor you, to think about those good and glorious truths. I pray through the reading of the word that indeed you will enlighten our hearts that we might understand the, the depth and the truth, uh, the breadth, and the width of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As we've gathered together here to receive Holy Communion, I pray for our hearts that they would indeed um, remember these things, uh, think on that which Christ has done, think on those things that Christ is currently doing, and those things that have promised for the future. I pray we would have great confidence in Christ, in Christ alone, courage and conviction and in, in these days. For those times that are greatly difficult and discouraging, perhaps things have not come the way and progressed in the way we would hope they would, I pray that our hope ultimately would be in you and in your promises and that you indeed will fulfill all that you have said and all that you um, have promised to do. I pray our trust and our strength would be in you and you alone. I pray this day, Father, for anyone that doesn't truly know Christ as Lord, may this be indeed the day of salvation. For those of us who are distracted by lesser things, I pray that we will brought, we will be brought closer to Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray these things because it is consistent with the will of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We'll receive communion after we sing this hymn together, and um, I'm going to go ahead and just say that we'll be seated this hymn, so you can think of it in a reflective way, if you wish. Um, it's 224 in your hymn book, There is a Fountain. This is written by William Cooper, it, it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but pronounced like double O, that's Cooper. Uh, he was um, a friend of John Newton, and he was encouraged to write hymns to express great truths, because this was a man who struggled with depression. And one way to resolve that is to look to Christ. <laughs> Look to him and, and remember what you were given in Christ. This most likely, I'm not certain about all the history of this particular hymn, but it certainly talks about Christ and his blood. And as you sing through it, think about what this hymn is trying to communicate. I think it ultimately comes from, and I'll read you this one little select selection, from Zechariah chapter 13. And if you know anything about Zechariah, we did preach through the Minor Prophets. Zechariah, more than any others, talks about the coming of Christ, the Messiah, who, as we understand, he has come and he, in his first advent, 
he has died, paid in sacrifice for our sin. But we have come to know that since time has passed and there are other things to be fulfilled, we're looking for his second coming, right, as we call it, uh, for Jesus Christ to come and reign in glory. Well, those are put together in Zechariah, both his sacrifice and his sovereign reign and rule, because both of them are true and will be fulfilled. Just as much as Christ came the first time in in the first incarnation, as we talk about, he will come and rule and reign. And there's a phrase in Zechariah, if you happen to look at the book, that is often repeated, and it points to on that day, on that day, and it talks about judgment that will come on that day, and it talks about salvation that will come all that on that day. It is talking about the new covenant that is in Christ that will bring about salvation. It focuses on the salvation of Israel, which he will do. All Israel will be saved, but it, it and it is through that that we have a sacrifice for sin. Chapter 13 in Zechariah, it says this in the promise of this salvation at, on the last days. It says, on that day, there should be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. They certainly need it. And if you read through this prophecy given to us by Zechariah, he points to their sin and, and the need for judgment. But it also says that about salvation, this phrase here, he will pour out in chapter 12, verse 10, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns from an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. This is looking to God's redemptive, as it says here, grace. It comes by his grace that we can look to Christ and live. From the Old Testament to the New, it's always focused on this one, Jesus Christ. He has given us this communion to gather together and to remember that very thing. That is indeed to look to Christ and remember, as this hymn writer has put it, there is a fountain filled with cleansing blood. The imagery of the fountain is that it is continuous. It never ends. It endures even now. Let's turn to 224 and we'll sing There is a Fountain.
reception of communion here. We'll do this in just a moment. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be a member of the church, but you need to be a believer in Christ and obedient to him. We'll have you come and receive some of the little ones that you just may need to just look and see what's going on. Ask your parents about this later. This is part of what we're doing to remember Christ until he comes. And so we'll do it the way we do it here. We'll have you come get both elements, this side, then the middle, and then this side, and then return. Carry both elements, and then you'll return and wait, and we will receive this communion together. I ask Blake to go ahead and bless both the fruit of the vine and the bread. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can remember the sacrifice that was paid for our salvation, Lord, your body that was broken for us, Lord, the blood that was spilled. Lord, we just thank you that we can examine our hearts today, Lord, and take this worthily. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would guide us during this time, Lord. We thank you for, as we just sung, Lord, the bloody fountain, Lord, that as sinners you plunged us beneath that flood, Lord, and... We've lost all our guilty stains because of you. We thank you for this time. We ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have this side come up first. You can stand and take both helmets and then return.
In our communion remembrance of Christ, there are two elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Both of them were elements that were part of the Passover feast in which Christ celebrated before he died. But he changed everything. He fulfilled it all. In the feast of the Passover, they would look to what God had done in providing deliverance temporally from their real circumstance. In the Holy Communion, this is the fulfillment of what has been promised. Christ actually did take on human flesh. He actually did live among us. He actually did fulfill all righteousness. You will need to stand before God with 100% merit. This will only come through Christ. Remember Christ and look only to him. Receive this in remembrance of him. As our hymn touched on, and as I actually will talk about today, and later on in our sermon from Hebrews, there is a another problem, and that is the demerit, the wage, against us, the debt we owe, and is for our sin. It will not be quietly pushed under the rug. It was nailed to a cross. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that will wash away your sin. And that fountain of blood, as the hymn writer wrote, is ever flowing. It never ends. Those sins that you may have committed in the past, present, and future, all of them are atoned for by Jesus Christ. Receive this in remembrance of him. The atonement that Christ provided for his people was brought about on a, on a cross, a symbol of death, a bloody instrument. And we talk about blood, this fountain filled with blood. The cross, which we have portrayed in the church then, and symbol of the church that we keep, We've turned that to an instrument of great beauty. Although it is greatly painful to think about our Lord suffering and dying on the cross, the beautiful thing about it, of course, is that he paid for our debt and sin. And so the cross to Christians then has become a beloved instrument of salvation as we look to Christ. We're going to sing about that, one of these familiar hymns. I think it's 2.30 in our hymn book as Blake comes to lead us. We can stand together and think about the cherishing of what Christ has done on that old rugged cross. 2.30 in your hymn books. Let's all stand. 230. The old rugged cross. We'll sing all four verses.
question number 237. 237. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. 237. morning, church. What a beautiful day to praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Psalms. Uh, please turn to Psalm chapter 113 in your pew Bible. If you don't have your Bible this morning, that's going to be page 510. Again, Psalm chapter 13, or excuse me, 113. We'll then move into 114 and skip to 117. In your pew Bible, that's page 510. everybody's flipping to Psalm 113, I'm just going to read something from Charles Spurgeon really quickly. Uh, Spurgeon talks about Psalm 113.8. Uh, it really starts with 7 into 8. But, uh, it says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. 
to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. I just want to share this. Charles Spurgeon says, Our spiritual privileges are of the highest order. Among princes is the place of select society. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Speaking of a select society, there is none like this. We are a chosen generation, a peculiar people, and a royal priesthood. We are coming to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The saints have courtly audience. Princes have admittance to royalty when common people must stand afar off. The child of God has free access to the inner courts of heaven. For through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Let us come boldly, says the apostle, to the throne of the heavenly grace. Among princes, there is abundant wealth. But what is the abundance of princes compared with the riches of believers? For all things are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Princes also have peculiar power. A prince of heaven's empire has great influence. He wields a scepter in his own domain. He sits upon Jesus' throne, for he hath made us kings and priests unto God, and we shall reign forever and ever with him. We reign over the united kingdom of time and eternity. Princes again have special honor. We may look down upon all earthly-born dignity from the eminence upon which grace has placed us. For what is human grandeur to this? He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. We share the honor of Christ, and compared with this, earthly splendors are not worth a thought. Communion with Jesus is a richer gem than ever glittered in imperial diadem. Union with the Lord is a coronet of beauty, outshining all the blaze of any imperial pompousness. Let's read scripture together, Psalm chapter 113, starting out. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above all the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his domain. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, 
the flint into a spring of water. Let's skip to chapter 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let us pray this morning together. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for this wonderful time together that you've given us, Lord, to praise your name. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give us daily that we do not deserve. We do not deserve another breath, Lord, for our sin and for our cosmic rebellion against you. We are totally depraved, God, in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. I want to thank you, Lord, for this church and thank you for sound teaching and thank you for helping us to exalt the word. We thank you for the sound of children. We want to pray for the salvation of these children today, Lord. Lord, may we preach the word faithfully in our homes and set godly examples to glorify you alone. Help us to point our children to repentance in Jesus Christ. Lord, again, we thank you for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition in your word. We ask, Lord, that you help us to continue to sanctify ourselves and hate our sin daily. Lord, make us more like Christ the further that we go in our lives. We desire, Lord, to exalt your name today and ask that you open our hearts and minds through worship and song first, but most of all through the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you break hard hearts today. And if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ here today, Lord, we ask that you save that person. Lord, we ask for strength and both opportunity to preach the gospel this week, Lord, in the workplace, in the marketplace, at home. Let the world see a set-apart people living for the world to come, not for the current conditions that we're in. Lord, we ask that you bless this offering today, Lord, and help us to use it for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.
let's stand and take out our sheets. If you didn't grab a sheet on the way in, there's some on the desk in the back. But let's uh, sing, My Hope is in the Lord. What a blessing it is that our hope is in the Lord. Comforting words, My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. Verse 3 says, And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. church. invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and before we get there, actually, I'm going to take a moment to look at Matthew chapter 17. So you might want to hold Hebrews in mind and then turn back to Matthew chapter 17. I wouldn't, I want to introduce this by Picking up a little bit of where we left off last time. <coughs> From a little different perspective. And just to bring out one other idea from Matthew 17 before moving on to our text in Hebrews 1. We've been focusing, as the writer of Hebrews does, 
on the excellency of Jesus Christ. That theme is what is expounded throughout the course of this book. Jesus is indeed the very final word, and the admonition is simply this, pay attention to him. I hope you kind of hear that and see that in the hymns that we sing, how uh, much they focus on the person, the nature, and work of Jesus Christ. Last week, we briefly touched on to talk about the one of the elements, if you will, one of the excellencies of Jesus is the radiance of how that was displayed to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Remember, Jesus took them up to a mountain to pray. And as he did it, he gave them, as I would call it, a glimpse of his glory. We call this the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in which he radiated a brilliant light. As the writer of Hebrews says, this is the, he is the radiance of the glory of God. This is God in flesh, incarnate deity, veiled to some degree because of the way he appeared and took on human flesh, but yet he was glorious all the while and gave them a glimpse of it. If you turn to Matthew chapter 17, <coughs> just I'll just touch on this where it picks up when he shows them his glory and the brightness of who he is and his face shining brilliant like a light. Notice here also in chapter 17 of Matthew in verse 3, there is an appearance of Moses and Elijah. The text reads this, And behold, there, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Well, Lord, it, it's good that we are here. And, and if you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, if you know much about Peter, <laughs> you almost got to stop and think, well, what's he saying here? And is that something good or, or not so good? Peter is a poster child of missing the point often. And here is no exception. The, the tents that he's going to put up are, are tabernacles, dwelling places. Uh, if you remember, it, it was something they utilized in, in, in worship at the feasts of the tabernacles, or tents, if you will. Our text here in Matthew 17, it really doesn't explain exactly what Peter had in mind, but, you know, he's caught up in the moment. He sees the radiance of Jesus Christ, gets a glimpse of his glory, if you will, and at that event, in a supernatural way, Moses and Elijah somehow appears before him, and so he doesn't know what to do. He's wanting to make tents, dwelling places, to, to stay there and to, to remain like they would at the Feast of the Tabernacles and perhaps worship God. As interesting as it all is here, it wasn't the intention of the writer to, to explain this appearance of Moses and Elijah any more than just mentioning them. While Peter was carrying on missing whatever point was being made, and we'll look at that in a second, 
God the Father speaks. A voice from heaven, notice verse 5, and it gives the point of what's going on here and what should be focused on more than anything else. Why he was still speaking, verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Again, here is a radiance of God, the glory of God. And then a voice, an audible voice from that cloud says this, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That is the focal point of it all. Whether we might say look to Christ or listen to him, right? That's the point. Jesus Christ is the focus. Moses and Elijah, if you remember, represented the law and the prophets. This is the Old Testament canon as we think of it. They were ordained by God to speak on behalf of God. But the Son is God. The subject that Moses and the prophets talked about ultimately is this one, Jesus. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it in his introduction, God spoke in many ways and forms in the past, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And what is the right response of recognizing the Son? It isn't to build a tabernacle to Moses and Elijah. It's to listen to the Son. Listen to him. He is the beloved Son. That's the right response, and that's the point of this. Notice verse 6. When these disciples, Peter, James, and John here, when they heard this, that voice from heaven, that radiance that they saw, they, were, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Understandably. Anything that is because two things. One, it is, it per, here is something perfect and holy, and this is a, a common response to, uh, to, to that, of recognizing who God is. We would call it the fear of the Lord. And, and literally, they, they were terrified and fell on their face. It, it is, there's a certain foreign aspect to it that is so different. But here in grace, verse 7, Jesus comes and he touches them, saying, rise and have no fear. How would they not have fear? Because of Christ, right? Otherwise, they would be in great fear. And beloved, so will you, if you don't know Christ. You should be afraid, greatly afraid. And it's only in Christ that you will rise and, and have no fear in that sense, no fear in, in great judgment. Notice verse 8. I think this is purposeful in the way this is put together here, and I hope you see the connection. When they lifted up their eyes, so they had fallen on their faces in great fear. Christ raises them up. And when they lift up their eyes, who do they see? Moses? Elijah? No. They saw no one but Jesus only. That is the point. Look to Christ. Look to him and live. Everything else is simply a pointer that one. That is the focus of the attention. Look to him. 
Listen to him. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Speaking of Christ, or we might call it Christology. He said, it is the, it is the true hub which the wheel of theology revolves and to which its separate spokes must each be correctly anchored if the wheel is not to get bent. Imagine a wheel, that's the analogy. There are spokes on that wheel, and what holds it all together is the hub. That's his analogy. I think it's a good concept to hold on to. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is the thematic cord that runs through all of Scripture. It's the point that everything is tightly wound around. It is the word of exhortation of Christ from the very beginning to the very end. No wonder the preacher here in Hebrews, then now we're back to Hebrews 1, he will call our attention to this excellent one, Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned before, and I'll say it again categorically so that you'll see it in the text once again, he mentions seven excellencies of Jesus. Not that these are all inclusive, but these are certainly representative of his perfection. He is, number one, heir. Number two, creator. Number three, radiance. Number four, God himself. Number five, sustainer. Six, savior. And number seven, Lord or sovereign of all. Look for those excellencies here in this text as I read. Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that the excellent name of Jesus would be that which is on our lips that which is in on our life, that which is directs everything about our thinking, not just this day, but days to head. And I pray, Father, that Christ would be glorified in all we do. I pray this in his matchless name. Amen. In these seven excellencies, as I've mentioned, air, creator, radiance, God, sustainer, savior, and sovereign, I think the first four of these, air, creator, and radiance, and then it says the imprint of his nature, I just summarize God there, that he is indeed God. I think these first four, as we've gone through already, focus much on the very nature of Jesus Christ. 
he, he points to it, and it kind of moves towards that in that Jesus Christ, the nature of him, is, is simply God. These remaining three, and I'll try to squeeze them in today, hopefully. If not, there's always next week. For these remaining thing, three, this sustainer, savior, and sovereign, as I put it, focus on his work. This is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I would see these last three focusing more on the work that he does. These works correspond, by the way, to his very offices for which he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. And he functions in that way, in these three works that are identified here. The first one, notice here, it says he does what? He upholds the universe by the word of his power, as we have it translated. The universe, in our translation here, translates a Greek word, panta. Some translations use all things, Ours say universe, it's, it's just trying to be interpretive and helpful in communicating that concept. The word panta in Greek simply means all. The staining action by Jesus is not limited to general laws by which he ordained to establish the, the nature of his creation. In other words, Jesus did, just didn't create the world, as it's said previously, he also sustains it. He sustains it not just by creating some rules, if you will, laws of motion, as we've discovered, gravity, and many others as we've identified them scientifically, but Jesus is intrinsically involved in all. Everything. Not, not just in what you see, but what you don't see. So we don't want to really limit it. He, he is sustaining all things. Paul would tell the church at Colossae this way in 117 of Colossians. He is, speaking of Christ, he's before all things. That, that is pointing to he is the creator of all. He's before all things, and in him... All things hold together. Th this concept is an absolute rejection of the idea of deism. Deism is an idea that God creates the world and then just lets it go on its own. He creates some rules by which it should follow, but he really isn't actively involved in the day-to-day. -day. Maybe a moderate type of deism might be the idea that, that God kind of controls the big things, but not the little things. Let me say categorically right now that that would not be true. You don't know God, and specifically you don't know Jesus Christ, if that's your thought. There is no such thing as fate. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as karma. There is Jesus Christ 
who sustains all. Psalm 148, 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but it, every decision is from the Lord. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your book In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Job 12, 23. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is in control and sustains all things. There is a practical deism, if you will. People might reject the idea of deism, but they live as if God isn't intricately involved. Remember, Jesus said, look, uh, he numbers the hairs on your head. He knows when a bird falls and dies because he is God. That's the nature of who he is. It isn't that he's trying hard to do this. He just is God. He is actively involved in everything, and he has a purpose for it. There's no purpose less evil. Evil is evil. It is a defiance of God. We'll talk about sin here in a minute that Christ atoned for, but understand this, that God is involved in all aspects of the creation, though you may not see. Andy's teaching on Esther, and you'll find that in that book. I highly encourage you to read it and attend the class. Uh, it's an hour before this time. But in the book of Esther, God is actually never mentioned. He is the unseen hand in human history. And it seems from reading it that all this stuff just kind of happens by chance. It doesn't. God is actively involved. And in that book, you're going to find out God has a purpose for all of that. We don't always know what his purpose is. But, beloved, we should know that God does have a purpose. You remember 828 of Romans, don't you? We know that all things... That for those who love God, work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, if you don't love God and you're not called according to his purpose, yeah, you should be really worried. In fact, I hope it causes you to run to Christ. But for those that are in Christ, God has a purpose for all. Oh, yes, wicked people will mean what they do for evil. But God will mean it for good. Because God is sovereign over all. He is, this, Jesus here says, he is the sustainer of it all. We call this the doctrine of providence. He's involved in every little thing. All of this is done 
not by a lot of hard work, which would be for us to do that, really unimaginable. But notice here in our text in Hebrews, it says he upholds all the universe, everything in it, anything that you can imagine. He, he is the sustaining one, and he does this how? By the word of his power. And it is essential to know who God is and why he lines us up with Jesus about the fact that he is the creator. He is God in, incarnate. It is through his word that he said, let there be in the very beginning. And it is by his word that things continue to be. This upholding upholds, as it's translated here, is, is actually an active participle. In the original Greek, it, it, is, it gives you the idea here then, this is a continuous action by Jesus Christ. And here's the point. If he wasn't upholding all by the word of his power, the word by which he created all, if he wasn't upholding all, it would literally fall apart. What we might imagine as an atomic apocalypse. Greater than anything we can imagine. And indeed it is his word that will bring about judgment. And that is the direction. In which things are going. It won't take much effort. For him to do that, it is by the word of his power. I'll read it for you from Second Peter chapter 3 as he records. It is called the day of the Lord. Second Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night when the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works in them that are done will be exposed. Recognizing that, there's an admonition in Peter's epistle, since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Well, what's what is keeping the heavenly bodies from burning right now? What's keeping the earth from dissolving? All the ingenuity that we have put into it? All our fear-mongering about how we might destroy things? No. Can I tell you? It is by the word of his power. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? He is upholding all things, preventing him, these things, from actually falling apart. And at his, his word, they will. And the point is to trust in him. But beyond that, this sustaining is not only a preventing, if you will, from falling apart. It also carries with it the idea of progress. Progress towards an intended outcome. Tom Constable in his commentary remarks this way. The idea is not so much that Jesus upholds the universe as a dead weight, similar to Atlas shouldering the world. Rather, he carries all things forward on their appointed course. 
That, that idea of upholding is, is the Greek word pharaoh. It, it, it means to, to bear. It's used in the idea of bearing fruit. You have a fruit tree or a vine, and it, and it buries, it, it bears, should I say, fruit. It, it produces something. That's the imagery of what Christ is doing. It, it, it's not only that he's keeping things together, keeping things from falling apart, but any progress and any beauty, any outcome you see is because of his word. The reason you find fruit and eat it is because of Christ. It's the word of his power. It is that which brings it forth. No wonder he says it metaphorically in John chapter 15. I am the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, in I in him, he bears much fruit. It's the same word, Pharaoh, here in Greek. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Can I tell you that? It's in the physical world. It's in the spiritual world. And, and see why people are practical deists? They think, oh, well, the reason I'm getting this fruit or whatever this object is, this production, is because of my ingenuity. I, I did all this. Really? Go ahead. Put the seed in the ground and tell me how it comes back with life. How does it produce seed uh, and more seed to continue life and fruit that you can eat and grain that you can eat can i tell you this all this is by the word of christ's power next time you see the the progress of life the the beauty of of fruit and uh, the beauty of foliage and, and different things all of that is produced by the very word of christ and he is the one who brings that forth metaphorically it is christ then that will bring forth any beauty any pro anything productive any as we call it spiritual fruit in your life he who began a good work in you paul would say to the church of philippi will bring it to completion that's the idea so the writer of Hebrews then reminds us why we should listen to Jesus because his word brings it forth. It is his from his prophetic office, if you will, speaking forward is why it doesn't fall apart and why things might progress in every realm. But also the second thing here in our text, it points to another office that Jesus holds, and that is of priest. Our text says in verse 3, after making purification for sins. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is Savior. He's not only a sustainer, but he's also a Savior. Sin is a big problem. Here, there's a number of words for sin. This one is harmatia. Sin, essentially, from a Greek lexicon, puts it this way. It's an act or feeling that transgresses, some transgresses something forbidden or ignores something required by God's law or character, whether in thought, feeling, speech, or action. Sin is not only something that you do, it's something that you don't do. 
commission and omission, as we might say. It's not only disobedience, but neglecting that which should be done. James puts it this way in his epistle 417. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sin is a failure to live up to God's righteous law. The word here in our text in Hebrews is, is, is a word that describes the, the concept of, if you will, missing a mark. Missing a mark on a standard that is put up, like a bullseye on a target, if you will. No one misses, hits the the mark every time. And I would argue that no one actually really hits it other than Christ. Because there is a remaining sin that dwells within believers that throws everything off alignment to a certain degree. It's hard for us to see and measure it, but measured against Jesus Christ we would fall on our face like they did on the Mount of Transfiguration and fall down like dead men. Peter, James, and John, I, I couldn't hold a candle to those men. And yet, that's how they responded in the perfect holiness of who God is. Remember Isaiah, he did likewise. This idea of the standard the target or the, the mark, we know we don't hit it every time. Some of us don't even come close once we take a closer examination. But many do congratulate themselves for getting pretty close. They would think, well, no one's really perfect. But that failure doesn't score any point. James would put it this way in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point becomes guilty of it all. No merit, just demerit. There's something always a little off-center with us. It's called sin. We may try harder, but perfection eludes us. Instead, what man often does then, rather than fall on their faces and repent, they will just simply redefine the target. <laughs> redefine what it means to hit the mark. I know God has said, but th he, he didn't know what we're going through, so we're going to redefine a lot of stuff that God said. We'll widen out the mark, if you will. And take great pride that we are a better target shooter than the next guy. Beloved, that isn't wise. Paul would tell the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10, we dare not classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves, one by another, and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You know why? Your comparison is with God himself. Your comparison is with Jesus Christ. And none of us hold a candle to him, do we? 
I mean, we might get close to Peter, James, and John, but they're on their faces before a holy God. And so would we. It is Jesus who would lift them up. Sin is a universal problem. It is the problem that really plagues us. That's the heart of it. There's none righteous. No, not one. No one really understands and no one really seeks God. They've all turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How could Paul quote that from Psalm 14? Because the, the idea is no one is perfectly righteousness, righteous. None of us are perfectly righteous. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition of humanity. And the problem with that condition is that it creates a debt. He will call it a wage, a payment due, a penalty required. The wages of sin is, is death. Some people think, well, the way to resolve that problem, we understand it, we're not always hitting the mark, we get some demerits against us, if you will. But God is not going to condemn me because I really try hard. And I do better than most. And in the end, if you weighed out my good and bad, there's a lot more good than, than bad. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a whole system on that. It's blasphemy. They teach you you can participate in various sacraments of which they blaspheme the Lord's Supper. And by receiving that, somehow you could receive a certain degree of grace which will overcome your sin. And if you haven't done enough of it during your life, that you will go to a place of waiting an imaginary place in the mind of men called purgatory. It doesn't exist. The scripture never talks about that. Jesus never said anything about that. After death is judgment. But they have this idea that you can go to this temporary waiting place and allow others to, to build up merit for you or put money in the church and therefore buy some merit for you or get some merit from other saints who have gone before and, and their righteousness outweighed their requirement of righteousness. So they've got extra they'll give you if you just pray a certain way and do a certain sacrament. Jesus never taught that. There's nothing in Scripture that would lead you to believe that you can atone for your sin by your own merit. And should I say this? By anyone else's merit, including Jesus Christ. Now that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? You're not going to atone your... Atone for, this is what I'm saying. You're not going to atone for your sin, the wages of which is death, through the merit of Christ in the sense of His perfect work you still got a problem you 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 have to have your sin atoned for it's not going to be absolved by the righteousness of your merit or anybody else's it's going to be paid by death and the good news is christ paid it 
all. He atoned. He actually died. This is why he died. He didn't just live a perfect life, which received the perfect merit to stand before God. We can stand in his perfect righteousness. But how about your actual sin? That has to be paid for, not by his merit, but by his death. I'll read a few passages for us. Here's one from Titus. Talking about the grace of God that appears and brings salvation. Speaking about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession. Chapter 3 of Titus, talking about the kindness and goodness of God, the Savior. When he appeared, he, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And, and how did that mercy come about? Mercy means not giving you what you deserve. Instead, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. It is by his wounds that you're healed. How would you be healed? How would your sin be atoned for? The wages of sin is death. Christ died. He paid it all. He, Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God transferred his, or imputed, as we might say, our sin on Christ, he died. Revelation 1.5, he loved us and has freed us by, from our sin by his blood. It is the blood of Christ that atones for our sin. It is the blood of Christ by which this propitiation would be made. It is by the blood of Christ that he made purification for our sin, that, that it has wiped it off the ledger, if you will. Th there's nothing left on the ledger because it's, it's paid. It's been atoned for. This is why Jesus then would function, as this writer of Hebrews is going to expand on, as our great high priest because he provides an atonement for our sin. It's a big problem. The condemnation, we're condemned already. But Christ has paid for it. Hebrews chapter 10, 14, we'll get there eventually. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You get the picture? It is through Christ's death on the cross, his blood, then that atones for our sin. Listen to Christ. Do you remember what he said on the cross in a marvelous statement? 
It is finished. It's finished. No more ritual for you to go through. No more sacrament for you to receive. No more trying to do better merit to somehow make up for your demerit. No, no more really trying hard to be a better person in the end because that, that's, a, that's a cycle that will never end. That's a cycle that will lead into failure. It'll just bring out further condemnation. You can redefine what you do. You can widen the target. But, but in the end, that's not what you'll be measured by. You'll be measured by Christ. And can I tell you, he made purification for sin. And for those that are in Christ Jesus, this should be the glorious moment of your life to think on that. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Back to our text in Hebrews, notice this when it emphasizes that he made purification for our sin, which really is, is the ultimate problem in the world right now and has always been. It says that he sat down. The Old Testament priest never sat down when he brought in the blood into the most holy place. Do you understand that? I heard somebody say there's no chairs in there, and there aren't. There aren't any chairs. But when you think about it, there is an artifact in the holiest place. It's an Ark of the Covenant. And in it is the law. Manna. And Aaron's rod, the budded. God demonstrated great provision for them, great law, and demonstrated that he could provide for them, that, that, that all this progression that would go on is done by the word of his power. And if you know anything about reading through the Old Testament, they broke <laughs> his law. They didn't believe in what God had promised that he would bring about. And they even complained about their daily bread. <laughs> and so on top of that ark is said to be a seat. We call it the mercy seat. And it is on that mercy seat that the blood would be sprinkled. But nobody sat on that seat. You know why? It represented the throne of God. Here, the writer of Hebrews then tells you about making purification of sin. And you know what they have in the mind? That continual purification of sin on the day of atonement and going to that mercy seat and throwing the blood on it. Well, guess what Jesus Christ did? He threw his own blood on it and he sat down because it's done. It's finished. Now he is on the majesty on high. And that's what the text said. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Christ is now in that imagery. This is enthronement language that, that Jesus now the, is the, the sovereign of all, king of kings, and filling that role. Not only prophet, not only priest, but now king. 
Not only sustainer, not only savior, but also sovereign Lord. The, the preacher in Hebrews will, will continue talking about this enthronement language when speaking of Christ. I'll give you a few texts. Hebrews 8. The point that we're saying is that we have the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In chapter 10, in verse 12, Christ offers this one sacrifice of all 10, as I mentioned before, the one sacrifice, and he sits down at the right hand of God. It's mentioned again, right hand. And then chapter 12, 2, looking to Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of the faith, who, for the joy that is set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand is a way of expressing power, authority, and honor. This is the position to which Christ has right now. Authority. He has all authority, and it's by that authority he commissions his disciples, if you remember. He has all power. Continually, he's always had all power. And he has great honor in which we would honor him and praise him for who he is. Peter puts it this way in 3.22 of his first epistle. Speaking of Jesus, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We would simply say it this way. Jesus is Lord. And I hope when you think about Jesus Christ, you would understand, indeed, that is his position right now. Unfortunately, we live in a world in which most, I would say, at least what appears to me, don't recognize his sovereignty. And that puts them in great peril. Because one day, everyone will recognize his sovereignty. It's the now, not yet, in the sense that he has not appeared to bring about great judgment. But he will. And I'll finish with this. You might want to look to Psalm 110. I think it's the basis that underlines this sermon in Hebrews. And so it would be helpful to be familiar with it, and you'll see the connections throughout the course of Hebrews as you read. And, but I'll make reference from time to time. It is a way to think about Christ <coughs> as, the, as he culminates him stating that he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, here, the text in Psalm 110, the Lord said to, to, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. This is, he will redeem a people, that's it reflection of that language 
The Lord has sworn, and he won't change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. God has spoken in these last days through this sovereign king. He did function as a prophet and told us and is continuing engaging in the world in which we live. He has functioned in his priestly duties to make purification for the sin of all of those who put their faith and trust in him. And he is currently absolute sovereign Lord of all. And there will be a day which every tongue And every nation will bow in heaven and earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I commend you to do it now. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace to us in giving us the Son, your mercy in not giving to us what we deserve, and in your faithfulness to fulfill all the promises that you have made. I pray our trust would be in you. And our, pray our praise would be towards our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ, reigning forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these things. If you have a response to make to Christ, you can do it now privately to him. If you need some counsel from it, the elders were always available after the service. Take a moment to think on these things. Father, grant us, I pray, a true vision of Christ the Lord. May it be sufficient in our days to continue to grow in grace in the knowledge of you and to abound in the fruit in which you will provide. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I like your hymn here, Amber, but I, you I don't know what the title is. Worthy, you were worthy. What is it? Worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Um, so what number is that? Worthy? Three?
Miracles happen, I found it. Quit playing beautiful songs because you keep changing up her schedule. I'm sure the other ones are beautiful, but that's on my mind at the moment. Worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Would you like to sing this together about Christ and worship him? Let's stand together and have Jerry lead us. Number three in your hymn book, worthy of worship. I just wanted to sing that. Thanks. Gracious Father, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as in your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.